0: This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at northchasefamilydentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer, serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at tidewaterac.com. For centuries, mankind reckoned with unfortunate and unexplained events by pointing a crooked finger at witchcraft. Did your crops become infested with bugs and die? It was witchcraft. Did your child get sick out of the blue? It must be witchcraft. Did your husband cheat on you? It couldn't possibly be that he's just an unfaithful man with a wandering eye. No, it was definitely the work of witchcraft. Like the consumption of alcohol in the years before Prohibition, witchcraft was an easy scapegoat on which entire communities could project their fears, grievances, and insecurities. Blaming witches was the perfect excuse because who was going to come to the defense of witchcraft or anyone accused of it? Unfortunately, this led to the deaths of thousands of people, mainly women, who were tried, hanged, and sometimes burned at the stake for their supposed entanglement with the dark arts. Fairy tales and legends cast witches with warts, pointy hats, and haggard faces. In them, they prey upon children, seduce family men, and cast spells out of spite on their fellow townsfolk, if they lived in towns at all. Today, so much of this country's understanding and widespread generalization of witchcraft is rooted in those sensationalized tales and even in some historical events, such as the Salem Witch Trials in Massachusetts. But accusations of evil witches were not limited to bedtime stories or the northern states. Nor were the fears that witches could quietly corrupt wholesome, God-fearing people. Americans have feared what they didn't understand since first stepping foot in the new world. And witchcraft is no exception, even in North Carolina. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures of southeastern North Carolina. I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. I want to welcome everyone to another installment in our ongoing mini series, A Cape Fear Unearthed Halloween. As I mentioned last week, each episode in this month long series is going to take a different form. This week, we're going to set aside telling a specific story so that we can take a brief detour down the path of magic, mysticism, and mystery for a look at the history of witchcraft in North Carolina. This topic is going to take us a little farther outside of our region than a typical episode of the show would, but it's all for the purpose of getting a clearer picture of the stories, laws, and folklore regarding witchcraft that influenced the minds and beliefs of the state's earliest generations. I want to preface this episode with a disclaimer that this is not going to be a comprehensive look at witchcraft in our state, because, frankly, that would be impossible. For one, we don't know the full extent to which it was practiced in the state, nor do we likely know every instance of someone being accused of it. Whether you believe in witchcraft or not, I think we can all agree that its practitioners would have known that it probably wouldn't have been best to do it out in the open in colonial and antebellum America. But in order to understand its presence, we have to rely on the written records of accusations the stories of the few trials that happened in the South, and the legends that live on. For this episode, I'm going to focus on how the fear of witchcraft would have impacted the traditions of residents, and how at least one person in the Cape Fear's history was tasked by a royal governor with subduing the perceived threat. Even though it's a little different than our typical style, I wanted to do this episode because there are few icons more indicative of Halloween than witches. If you're a 90s kid like me, the parent of one, or just someone with good taste in movies, then the month of October is probably spent worshipping at the altar of films like Hocus Pocus and The Craft. But like so much of the iconography associated with this holiday, witches have a tangible presence in history, most of which has not been kind to those caught in its web. For this special series, we're not going to have any guests. It's just going to be me telling you these stories campfire style. So pull up a log and settle in. For the next chapter in a Cape Fear Unearthed Halloween, as we conjure up a look at witchcraft in North Carolina. The first official effort to address witchcraft in North Carolina was inscribed into law on December 3rd, 1679. At that time, the initial attempt to colonize the Cape Fear region at Charlestown had failed only twelve years earlier, and the first permanent settlement at Brunswick Town was still nearly half a century away. But the province of North Carolina was already growing, and so too was a population rich in religious communities, who were undoubtedly aware of the country's palpable concern over the perceived evil that was witchcraft. That sixteen seventy nine law granted local juries the authority to investigate felonies, witchcraft, enchantments, sorceries, and magic arts, among other crimes. But it wasn't until seventeen sixty eight, nearly a century later, that then Royal Governor William Tryon issued approval for justices of the peace to actually try cases involving charges of enchantment, sorcery, and art magic. In other words, it gave local authorities a certain amount of latitude to follow up on accusations of witchcraft, which were often thrown around by disgruntled, paranoid, misogynistic, and vengeful colonists. This is where the early Cape Fear region gets its most substantial connection to witchcraft. Among those men granted the authority by Governor Tryon was William Dry III. If you remember back to our Brunswick Town episode earlier this year, Dry was the commander of a citizen militia that defended the Cape Fear settlement against a Spanish attack in 1748. Under his leadership, they retook their town from the Spanish invaders with a coordinated attack. For his efforts, he was promoted to colonel and remained an important figure in the area through the Revolutionary War. Today, he's buried at Brunswick Town. Now, did this proclamation from Tryon make Dry and those named with him legislative witch hunters of a sort? Probably not, but we also don't really know what that power entailed and if or how they used it. More likely, it offered residents some comfort to know that their fears over the inhuman evil of witchcraft could at least be addressed by the laws of man. But in turn, it's also possible that, in their eyes, it gave some legitimacy to their concerns because the state was now officially acknowledging that such a charge could be brought. Well before colonizing the New World, the fear of witchcraft was widespread across the globe and was certainly something that Europeans would have brought with them when they made the voyage across the ocean. As we've discussed in previous episodes, the development of this region, both those attempts that failed and those that prevailed, were closely tied to the relationships built with local Native American tribes. The Barbadian settlers that founded the short-lived settlement of Charlestown in 1664 forged relationships with local tribes that quickly soured over time, largely due to the fact that that some settlers are said to have kidnapped Native American children in an effort to force them to become Christians. This could have been because early settlers of North Carolina and America as a whole had expressed concerns that Native Americans were, in fact, practitioners of witchcraft who consorted with the devil Some said they could conjure great storms to fend off settlers making their way across the ocean, and others said that their tribal ceremonies resulted in spirits emerging from the fire. Early next year, we're going to devote an episode to exploring these Native American tribes that would have inhabited the region before Europeans colonized Carolina. But I'll go ahead and spoil it for you now that these tribes were not witches. When colonists arrived in America, they had never seen anything like Native Americans, a race of people with cultures all their own. They communicated through foreign languages and practiced traditions, customs, and a practical means of living that were completely new to the colonists. But out of their element in a new land, some colonists saw the strange practices of these people as unexplainable and therefore the result of an ungodly bond or allegiance to a darker being. A similar fear was ascribed to the cultures of the slaves they purchased or stole from Africa. These assumptions and generalizations were baggage carried with many of the settlers who had fled their home countries for reasons such as religious persecution. They clung to their faith as they weathered the challenges of settling a new land, and when they felt something more sinister could be working against them, they gave in to their own form of savagery. The most famous instance of this, of course, was the Salem Witch Trials in 1692 and 1693, which resulted in the deaths of 19 people, mostly women, who were all executed at the gallows for witchcraft. Another victim was crushed to death for his unwillingness to plead in the case, and five more people, including an infant child, died in prison. Despite what you might think, the American colonies didn't come out of the Salem Witch Trials with a newfound fervor for hunting down supposed witches. In fact, in most places, it was quite the opposite. The political and religious mass hysteria stirred up in Salem was something that most communities in the still young country wanted no part of, especially considering the optics of condemning someone to death who was not, in fact, a witch. When accusations of witchcraft were brought to the courts in North Carolina, most were said to have been thrown out. And even when cases were actually brought to trial, the accused was often found innocent and then countersued for defamation. For the most part, North Carolina managed to fend off a widespread witch panic. Local historian Lewis T. Moore postulates that this may have been because religion was so devout and resolute in the South that it didn't even allow for the intrusive thought that witchcraft could be afoot. That might be a broad stroke's generalization of why we don't see more witchcraft cases represented in the state's records. But Moore believed that this was at the heart of one of the only cases of witchcraft thought to have ever been tried in the colony of North Carolina, or at least the only one conducted on record. It happened in 1697 in Currytuck up the coast. Now, I could paraphrase this case, but I want to present it to you as the prosecution presented it to the courts in the 17th century, which Moore preserved in his research on witchcraft from the colonial records. Quote, The jurors of our sovereign lady, the Queen, present upon their oaths that Susanna Evans, of the precinct Currytuck in the county of Albemarle, in the aforesaid province, not having the fear of God before her eyes, but being led by the instigation of the devil, did on or about the 25th day of July, last part, the body of Deborah Bourchier, being then in the peace of our sovereign lady, the queen, devilishly and maliciously, bewitch, And by the assistance of the devil, afflict with mortal pains the body of said Deborah Bourchier, whereby the said Deborah departed this life. The prosecution claimed that not only had Susanna Evans fatally used witchcraft on the victim, but she also bewitched a handful of others to cover up her crime even with the inflammatory charge of witchcraft and a dead woman on their hands, the jury came back with a not guilty verdict, according to Moore's records. Now, in my research, and much of what has been done by those before me, that's the only notable case of a witch trial being conducted in North Carolina's colonial period. But that doesn't mean that North Carolinians just dismissed the idea of witchcraft altogether. But that doesn't mean that North Carolinians dismissed the idea of witchcraft altogether. Quite the contrary, in fact. It was very much on the minds of the state's early residents and even persisted through the many generations after them. As more people moved to the Carolinas from the northern states, their fear of witches traveled with them, embedded in their beliefs. In 1805, Reverend Brantley York famously wrote that witches, many of whom shape-shifted into animals and could enter homes through keyholes, were running rampant in the Piedmont of North Carolina. Obviously, we don't know if that is true, but what we do know is that while witchcraft wasn't tried very often in North Carolina courts, witches and their influence are incredibly represented in area folklore, which is considered to be the beliefs, traditions, and practices of a given community. I can't go through every belief and superstition recorded in North Carolina folklore That pertains to witches, but I do want to share some of the ones that stand out today as truly wild. Many of them tell of how one becomes a witch. For example, the person would walk with the devil himself to the highest hill in their town for nine consecutive nights and curse God. For example, the person would walk with the devil himself to the highest hill in their town for nine consecutive nights and curse God. After their daily pilgrimages were complete, the devil would put one hand on the person's head and another on their foot and proclaim that all between his hands was now his loyal servant. Another supposed means of acquiring witch-like powers was to shoot a silver bullet at the moon nine times while cursing God. Or one could boil a live black cat, drop the bones in the river, and the one that floats would be considered the witch bone. As long as you keep it with you, you will be a witch. Some of the folklore sought to alert people to the possible symptoms that could indicate a witch's influence. If you had sores in the corners of your mouth or your eyes twitched, then you were bewitched. There were methods to ward off witches as well. You could hang a horseshoe on your door, burn salt in your fireplace, spit on a straw broom and lay it at your door, wear your shirt inside out, Sleep with a Bible under your pillow. Drop milk on a piece of silver. Sprinkle mustard seeds around your bed. Or wear a dime with a small hole drilled through the center around your neck, just to name a few. And there were warning signs for how to spot a witch. If an old lady has just one tooth in her head, then she's a witch, according to one story. If a woman can't step over a broom, she's a witch. Witches supposedly did all their traveling in bad weather, and if they managed to cross a religious threshold into a sacred church, they sat with their back to the minister. Did a woman have certain marks on her body that would indicate a covenant being sealed with the devil? If she was submerged in water, would she float? That last one was said to have been employed in a few court cases around the country because it was believed that a witch was so impure and devoid of God's love that she wouldn't sink if held under water; She would float. For some reason, it was her allegiance to the devil that kept her buoyant. You'll probably have noticed that all of these pertain to women but men weren't safe from the accusations of witchcraft. They were just granted the benefit of the doubt that women weren't often afforded. Does it surprise you to learn that centuries of fears over witchcraft bubbled over with misogyny? Tom Pete Cross, whose 1919 study on witchcraft in North Carolina is a hallmark of the field, cites one source that claims male witches, which were called witch masters or wizards, didn't hide their mystical abilities from the public because they only used them to subdue the more feral female witches who used their powers for evil. Quote, The power of wizards was exercised for the purposes of counteracting the malevolent influences of the witches of the opposite sex. With time, you might think that the fear of witchcraft eroded. And yet, it still popped up in the papers in the 1800s and even into the 1900s. In 1874, the Wilmington Morning Star ran a story about a woman who lived in Pender County's Long Creek community, who demanded that authorities arrest her neighbors for stealing her land and defaming her through the use of witchcraft. It's unclear what happened in the case or to the woman, only that she was taken to the hospital, having also claimed to have been attacked by bears. It could have been a case of mental illness, but it also shows that witchcraft still, for lack of a better phrase, freaked people out. Although North Carolina had been resistant to witch hysteria, it managed to defy logic in another way. A law passed in 1951 by the North Carolina General Assembly banned the practice of phonology, palmistry, clairvoyance, fortune-telling, and other crafts of the kind. Ironically, those crafts were only permitted at school and church functions. That 20th century law doesn't mention witchcraft specifically, but it's not a stretch to think that the intention behind the law was at least some lingering remnant of those fears of witchcraft. As late as 1976, A case was brought against a Morganton woman charged with violating that law, according to the state. It was ultimately dismissed. But, and this may or may not shock you, that law, known as North Carolina Criminal Code General Statute 14-401.5, wasn't repealed until 2000. And four. That's right. Up until 15 years ago, the fears over witchcraft-style practices still held a place in our state laws. Although it seems crazy and irresponsible to hear stories of people casting blame on witchcraft for their problems, you have to keep in mind that in centuries past, they didn't have the knowledge or tolerance we have today. All they had was their beliefs, often religious, to guide them, protect them, and reassure them in times of crisis. But that still doesn't excuse the centuries of finger-pointing and stake burning that results from an irrational fear that evil is out to get you. When such charges were leveled at people, it ruined their reputations, and in far too many cases, it cost them their lives. Are witches real? That's up to your own beliefs. But there are pagan and Wiccan groups and covens still active throughout the state of North Carolina today, many of which claim and celebrate the traits and resilient history of witchcraft. These are not the cauldron-stirring, devil-worshiping groups of legend. They're just groups of like-minded people who worship and bond over shared interest in some of the tenets of the pagan religion. Today, we raise witches up as the cultural ambassadors of Halloween, a far cry from the early American image of evil women cursing homes, livestock, and families, and opening the door to the devil's influence on the country. North Carolina doesn't carry a prominent lineage of witchcraft in its recorded history. But we also can't deny that it was on the minds of the people who founded this state and this country. It's written in their family traditions, preserved in folklore, and even represented in the laws that governed this state. In a way, we've been entranced and bewitched by witches from the start. Some people just believed it to be more literal than others. That's it for the latest installment in a Cape Fear Unearthed Halloween and our look at witches in North Carolina. Thank you so much for joining me. We'll be back next Thursday with our penultimate tale in this special series. Until then, be sure to share your thoughts on the show on Twitter by following our new account at CF Unearthed and by tweeting the hashtag CF Unearthed or you can email me directly at Unearthed at gmail.com. Also, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each episode. And this week, I'm going to be sharing a photo gallery of my favorite movie and TV witches of all time. You can find that group by searching Kate Fear Unearthed on Facebook. And don't forget to sign up for the Kate Fear Unearthed newsletter that goes out every Thursday. In it, I include links to our new episodes and any supplemental pictures or videos that I uncover in my research, all delivered right to your inbox. Sign up for the newsletter at starnewsonline.com newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Kate Fear Unearthed is written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or on Twitter at Hunter Wesley. Additional editing is done by Adam Fish. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what spooky things you might unearth.